This morning's scripture comes from Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. Uh, you can find it in your Bibles, in your bulletin, or on the screen behind me. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Caitlin. Good morning, Lake Baldwin. Well, I just recently finished uh, one of my goals, which was to finish reading the Chronicles of Narnia, seven books. Just finished reading The Last Battle. And if you're familiar with that, yes, it is uh, children's literature, so think what you will of your pastor engaging in that. Uh, but I sure enjoyed it. My next... Uh, series to tackle is the Wing Feather Saga. If you know about that, uh, written by Andrew Peterson, just shoot me an email, let me know if that's worth my time. Well, if you don't know about the Chronicles of Narnia, um, let me tell you a little bit about it. It's about, a, it's about a, a place called Narnia in which there is magic, there are mythical beasts, there are talking animals, there's humans, there's kingdoms, there's the presence of good and evil, and probably the most important thing you need to know about Narnia is its ultimate and supreme protagonist, and that is Aslan. Aslan is a giant lion. And if you read the Chronicles of Narnia, you'll come to realize that Aslan represents someone familiar that we all know about, and that is Jesus. Well, in the last battle, um, what we have here is the plot is to impersonate Aslan. Uh, and the antagonists are doing this, why? Because they want to take control. They want to deceive the Narnians and take control. And they're actually able to deceive a lot of the mythical beasts and talking animals. Uh, they even come so close as to deceive the last king of Narnia. His name is Tyrion but they don't deceive Tyrion. And why is that? Why, does, why is Tyrion able to see through this fake? Well, it's because Tyrion knows the original. He knows the real Aslan. He knows what he's like, he knows his character, and so when he hears about this impersonator, he can spot that this is just a cheap trick, a cheap imitation. Well, how do you spot counterfeits? How do you spot counterfeits? Well, you spot counterfeits by knowing the original, you, by knowing the real thing. This is what the Secret Service actually does. In order to spot counterfeit money, the Secret Service studies the real. Right? They, they know what real money feels like. They can feel the raised printing. They can see the quality of the color shifting ink. They know about the color fibers. They know about the watermark. They have studied 
the original. So when they're confronted with counterfeit money, they can spot it right away. And so the same thing is happening here in Colossae. They are being confronted with false teaching. And what does the Apostle Paul do before he even sets about trying to confront the details of that false teaching? What does he do? He begins to teach them about Jesus, the true gospel. Why? So that they can can spot false teaching. This is no different for us as Christians today. We have to be experts in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have to know the original. Why? Because we are being inundated with false teaching. The church is being assaulted with false teaching. So we have to be well acquainted with the original. So today, as we look at this wonderful passage of scripture, uh, a couple things about it. Scholars have, have debated whether this has been a hymn from the early church. Maybe it was. But it's certainly a magnificent, magnificent, elegant uh, literary piece that conveys to us the supremacy of Jesus Christ. So when we look at it today, we're going to unpack three things about Christ's supremacy. We're going to see that he is the eternal God. He is the eternal God. He's also the Lord of creation, and he's also the head of the church Supreme in all those three things. So let's look right away at the supremacy of Christ as the eternal God. We see this first in verse 15, and then we see it in verse 19. In verse 15, it says, he is the image of the invisible God. That word image in the Greek is icon. You guys know what an icon is. Here it is something that has been formed to resemble something else. It's a representation of the original. It bears its likeness. It's like a picture But Paul is here using it not to say that Jesus is just a portrait of the invisible God. He's saying something more profound. He's saying that Jesus is identical in the substance of God the Father. He is equal in power, equal in glory to the Father. He has all of the attributes of Almighty God. He's eternal, he is infinite, he's holy, he's wisdom, power, justice, holiness, truth. He's all of those things. Jesus is the revelation of God exclusively and entirely. And then when he goes on in verse 19, he says, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And he says it in a different way in chapter two, he would say, for in him the whole fullness of the deity dwells Bodily, in other words, Paul is making the point that Jesus is the eternal God. He is the eternal God. He's the one that existed forever. And as we look and unpack a little bit of the grammar here, that he is in, he is in the image of God, it's saying that Jesus is the image of God for all time. In eternity past, he was in the image of God. In eternity future, he is the image of God. In all of redemptive history, at every single point, he is the image of the invisible God. So yes, before his incarnation, fully God. Also, after the incarnation, he is fully God. He is not more God after the incarnation than before. And so, what we have here in Jesus is what John says in chapter 1, no one has ever seen God the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. He's talking about Jesus here. 
Listen to this. He says, the only God who is at the Father's side. The Apostle John is making a declaration that Jesus is God and that he he makes known the invisible God. And so what we have after the incarnation, yes, he is fully God, but now we see invisible form what was invisible before. See, we knew that God was merciful and compassionate, but now we see it in its full glory. Him laying his hands on the leper and healing him. Him him asking the lame to rise and walk. Opening the eyes of the blind. He is a compassionate God. So what we saw before as maybe a faint black and white photo is like now sitting in an IMAX theater. 3D, surround sound. A full revelation of the eternal God. And any teaching that falls short of Jesus being fully God is false teaching. And it's not just a small error. It strikes at the vitals of the Christian faith. In verse 15, he goes on to say that he is the firstborn of all creation. Now, it's a gross misinterpretation of this phrase to say that Jesus is a creation of God the Father, that he is the first creation. That's actually a heresy that that was confronted in the early church uh, by by a man called Arius. He propagated this notion that Jesus was a creation of God. And the church put down this heresy in 325 AD at the Council of Nicaea. And I just want to put out a little plug to you for Bear With Dead Guys. If you haven't been... Now's a great time to be going to Bear With Dead Guys. Not only will you get to taste some great beer, probably some very interesting and out-of-the-way out beer that you probably wouldn't taste, but they're studying the heretics. And why is that important? It's because there's nothing new under the sun. You see, today we are confronted with this very same heresy, her- heresy that says that Jesus is a creation that he is a little g God, that he is not the eternal God. That is false teaching. What Paul is saying here is a concept called primogeniture. And it's this Old Old Testament concept of the firstborn son. And if you're familiar with this in ancient times, the firstborn son was the one who got the inheritance He's the one who had all of the authority and the power of the Father. So when we talk about Jesus being the firstborn, we're not saying that he was born first. We're saying that he has primacy in his status, in his position, in his power, and in his authority. In Psalm 89, verse 27, it says this, and I will make him the firstborn the highest of the kings of heaven. The psalmist is talking about David. And you know that David was not the firstborn of Jesse. He was actually the lastborn of Jesse. And so here is that concept of primogeniture, that David is the firstborn in the fact that he is the first among kings of the earth. He has the highest position. He has all of the authority and all of the power. And of course, you know this points to the, the coming king, Jesus. 
So Christ is the firstborn of all creation, and as such, as the firstborn son, he has the right of the heir, which is all of creation. It is his, and because it is his, he is supreme and Lord over it. And that means this, that there's nothing in creation that is the peer of Jesus there's nothing in creation that, is, that comes close to being Jesus' peer. You may think that the angels are his peer, but they are not. Paul's going to confront this idea that the angels should be worshipped in the second chapter. But here we have it that Jesus, he is the heir. He is supreme. He is the firstborn. He is the only one that's due all of our worship and praise. He stands apart from, our, from the creation. He is holy. Now, why does it matter for us to see that Christ is supremely the eternal God? Well, we're going to find out that Christ can do only what the eternal God can do, and that is to create everything out of nothing and to redeem mankind. Only God can create the universe out of nothing. Only God can redeem mankind. I gave you this quote in your bulletin. It's from John MacArthur. I love how he puts it so simply. He says this, that Jesus is himself God is the heart of the gospel because apart from his deity, he could not save a single soul. No heresy so corrupts the gospel and robs it of its power as the teaching that Jesus is not God. Apart from his deity, there is no gospel. There is no salvation. Jesus is supreme because he is the eternal God. Let's look now at the fact that Jesus is supreme because he's the Lord of creation. We see this in verses 16 and 17. And we're gonna see that he's the Lord of creation in three ways. He's the agent of creation. He is the aim of creation. He is the sustainer of creation creation. Christ created everything. He is the agent. It says in verse 16, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. What it is saying here is that Jesus existed before creation and that he created everything. Now, in the Old Testament, you get hints of this, right? In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, it says, let us make man in our image. But in the New Testament, the Apostle John in chapter 1 makes this explicit. He says, he, Christ, was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made, He's saying that Jesus created everything, things that are seen, things that are unseen. And I think about the fact that when Paul wrote these words, there was so much that was not visible to them that is now actually visible to us. So take a look at this picture from the James Webb Telescope. It is of the Cartwheel Galaxy. It's been on my computer. I downloaded it. Um, several weeks ago, and this, this galaxy is 15 million light years away, 
And so a light year, I think, is roughly six trillion miles. Uh, so that's like 9,000 million trillion miles away or nine billion trillion miles away. Apostle Paul could not see that. When David was writing the psalm and he, and he looked up and considered the heaven and the stars, the moon and the stars, and he was blown away, he could not see that. And now we're peering trillions of miles away in space and we see this cartwheel galaxy composed of billions of stars. Our God, our eternal God, Jesus, he made that. And everywhere they're starting to point that telescope in, in this little patch of space thinking it's empty, no, there's a whole bunch more stars there and galaxies there. They say that there's over a trillion galaxies, each containing a billion stars, and they're continuing to look for them. Put up the next slide. This is, this is a slide. Um, some of you have, may have seen this. This is not actually a real picture. It's a computer rendering of a eukaryotic cell. And um, they, they're using nuclear MRI. They're using um, chiro uh, electron microscopy. And they're using all this data with x-rays. And they're using a computer to generate this image so that we can understand the in intricacies of a cell. I mean, in some ways, it looks a little bit like a crazy universe going on there. But that, you know, that's something that the psalmist, that's something that the apostle never saw, part of the invisible creation of God. And if you think about the universe, the, the entire universe as being maybe a book, realize this, we have just turned to the first page and read maybe just the very first word of creation. So much more that we can't see that our great God has created. This is Jesus. He is the eternal God. He is the agent of creation. Also included in creation are these things called thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. Most often when we see this in scripture and we see it in, in Jewish literature, it's referring to spiritual forces, whether angelic or demonic. Spiritual forces, these rulers. And in chapter two, Paul is gonna talk about this. He's gonna say that Christ disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. And how does he do it? He does it by the cross. Well, I've mentioned Pastor Wang Yi uh, to you before. He's, he's in the Chinese church. He's serving a, I think, 11-year sentence. I think he's got nine years left. Uh, he's in jail for preaching the gospel. He sees this passage, and he sees the fact that the state is under the lordship of Christ. Yes, it is a battle against the Chinese state, but behind that, our principalities, there are powers, there are forces at play. And so it's a reminder from Ephesians 6 that Paul says, our battle is not against flesh and blood. It is against these rulers, these dominions, these authorities, even when they are in rebellion against their creator. And that's exactly what's going on in the world today. There are kingdoms, there are rulers, there are governments that have gone astray. They're in rebellion against the one who put them in place. 
But Jesus is their creator. He's the one that is Lord over all of them. Well, Christ is supreme because he is the agent of creation. He is supreme also because he is the aim of creation. In verse 16, that last half, it says, all things were created through him and for him. The purpose of everything that we see and everything that we don't see, the purpose of you, of me, of Winter Park High School, of Orlando, purpose of everything is not for us. It's for Jesus, for his glory, for his power, for his worship, for his agenda and purposes. And we can turn it around and think that the world is all about us, that things, that creation exists for us. We can even think that God exists for us, and we've got that backwards. We exist for him. The aim of creation is Christ himself. You know, as an engineer, I got, I got the privilege to create all sorts of new de designs and a few inventions. And you think about it in just that simple way, those things that I created, they, they existed for me. I, I don't exist for them. I don't serve them. I mean, I'm the one who created them. They wouldn't even exist physically if I didn't put them into being. And it's the same way when we think about ourselves in relationship to God. If you're here this morning, you exist for him. He doesn't exist for you. And because we exist for him, he is worthy of all our worship. So Christ is supreme. He is the agent of creation. He is the aim of creation. He is also the sustainer of creation. In verse 17, we see this. And he is before all things, and in, in him all things hold together. He is before all things. This, again, is affirming his primacy, his pre-existence. And because he is before all things, he is rightly above all things. And then when it says, in him all things hold together, this is speaking of the fact that Jesus is the one who sustains and maintains all of creation. Down to that little cell and all its intricacies and how it works, to that glorious galaxy that is ginormous, he is sustaining and maintaining everything, the beat of your heart, the breath that you are taking, Everything is happening because he is sustaining it. And if Jesus did not exert his power to sustain the creation, it would disintegrate, it would cease to exist. And so Christ is supreme because he created everything. He is the agent. He is, he is the aim. Everything was created for him, and he's the one that is keeping it all together, all functioning. He's the supreme Lord of all creation. And then lastly, let's look at the fact that Christ is supreme as head of the church. It says that in verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. And so when we think about Christ as the head of the church, he is the foundation and the source and the very vitality of the church you know, I love it when I see how worship unfolds on a Sunday morning because 
you know, we do communicate. I do communicate with the worship leader, in this case, uh, Glenn and I, and we trade notes and things like that, but sometimes I don't see all the things that they put in there. And this morning, she's quoting all the things that I was gonna quote, so <laughs> that is a God thing. She quoted Ephesians 2.20 and the fact that the, the cornerstone of the church is Jesus. He is the foundation of the church. Why is that? If Christ didn't purchase the saints with his blood, there would be no church. He purchased it with his blood. He is the very foundation of the church. He is the source of the church. He is the originator of the church. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 19, this is what Paul would say. He would say, Christ is the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grow with a growth that is from God. It's from the head that the body is nourished. So the, the church gets its source from Christ its foundation from Christ, it actually gets its vitality and growth from Christ. And so there's no, there's no health in a church if Christ is not the source of that. Christ is the one that actually controls the growth in the church, right? We can do all sorts of things, but it is a spiritual thing and it requires spiritual power. He is the, he is the source of our vitality, he is also supreme as the authority or the head of the church. Now, this has huge implications for Lake Baldwin Church. It means that Jesus, and Jesus alone, is the chief shepherd of Lake Baldwin Church. He is the chief pastor of this church. He is the one that's in charge. He is the leader of this church. Now, the, the elders have been put in place as under-shepherds to Jesus, but we serve him. He is the one that leads. He's the one that sets the direction for the church. As elders, we are accountable to him. We have been entrusted as stewards to be responsible. And yes, one day we're going to stand before him and give an account. But he is the supreme head and leader of this church. And because he is, this is his church meaning it belongs to him. Lake Baldwin Church belongs to Jesus. It doesn't belong to me. It doesn't belong to the elders. It doesn't belong to any one of us. It belongs to him. And we, by his grace, are a part of this wonderful body. So he's the foundation and source. He's the vitality. He is the authority and head. And it says that he is the firstborn from the dead. Now here, what he's referring to is the resurrection. Yes, there have been others that were risen from the dead, like Lazarus, right? But Lazarus would die again. Jesus is the only one and the first one that came that rose from the dead never to die again. And by his resurrection from the dead, he inaugurates a brand new creation, right? And that creation is growing within you. And it's corporately this church and the global church and it will culminate in a new heavens and a new earth. And so Christ is supreme both over the old creation that is passing away, and he's also supreme and Lord over the new creation that he inaugurated with his resurrection. And so what do we make of all this? That Christ, he is the eternal God. He is Lord of creation. He's the head of the church. What are we to make of all this? 
In verse 18 is a great summary, that in everything he might be preeminent. preeminent. That means Jesus surpasses everything and everyone. He surpasses them in rank, he surpasses them in status, in authority, in power, in prestige, in beauty. Jesus is supreme. And so what are the implications to that statement? That our God is an awesome God. Let me suggest to you that this, this should change everything. This should have earth-shattering impact. I'm gonna give you three ways that we are to look at this. But let me start out by saying that when we think about our struggles, the reason I think we struggle so hard is because our God is too small. Our God is too small and, and we actually think we're bigger than we are. You know, you look back, think back to that galaxy. It's a galaxy of 100 billion stars. We're, we're on one planet circling one small insignificant star. Jesus is the creator of a, 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 trill, a billion trillion stars. He spans the entire universe. Our God is too small. We make ourselves too big. Let me give you three applications to this stunning truth. Since Christ is Lord of all, it means every square inch, every square millimeter of creation down to that tiniest atom to the largest galaxies, he is Lord over it. It belongs to him. He claims it as his own. It exists to worship him. And so when you think and bring this home, what about Winter Park High School? What about Orlando? What about your neighborhood? What about Maitland? What about Conway? And I heard uh, a pastor a few weeks ago say this. He's, he's in, he's in the, the PCA. Um, Tim Rice is a pastor at Trinity in Lakeland, and I love the way he says it. He's, he said this, do you own the lostness of your geography? Why would he say something like that? You can only say something like that if Jesus has rightful claim to every square inch of this planet. And so does it bother you that your company, your neighbors, family, friends are not under the lordship of Christ? In Philippians 2, here again, it says about Jesus that every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One day, what is being said here is going to be realized. And some are gonna fall down. They're not even just gonna bend their knees. We're gonna fall down on our faces and we're gonna be in delight and joy saying Jesus is Lord. Thank God, he is Lord over everything. But there's gonna be some that day they're gonna bow, but they're not gonna do it willingly. There's gonna be anger in their heart. There's gonna be hate in their heart because they have to bow down to the Lord of the universe, give up their rights as owning their own life to the one who truly owns their life. Do you own the lostness of your geography? Does it bother you that there are people in your life who are not bowing the knee to Jesus, who are not delighting in Jesus? I hope you are. 
I hope you're bothered by that and let it drive you to pray. Oh Lord, let thy kingdom come and pray again and pray again and wear out your path to heaven on their behalf. Maybe your friend, maybe this will be the first time someone actually prays for that coworker. You ever think about that? There are people in this world who have never been prayed for. Start praying for these people. Pray for them by name. Maybe it's the first time that heaven's door has been opened and that name has been brought to the Father. And we know the Father has mercy, the Father has grace, and the Father is not weak or small. He can save anyone. First application. Second one, if he is Lord and creator of everything, is there anything too big for him to handle? He's the guy, he's the God that spans a trillion, trillion, trillion miles. That's nothing to him. If he has all the power to create all of these galaxies, if he has the wisdom and the understanding to put all this together, to create these cells, there's nothing that's too big for him. And especially considering this, that the reason he created you is for himself. If he created you for himself, then he has a vested interest in what's going on in your life. Whatever it is that you are facing, Jesus cares about it. And guess what? He is powerful enough, he is big enough to handle what you are facing, what you are dealing with. That's the second application. Here's the last one. I started off saying that scholars think this was an early hymn, and I actually don't think it matters because it should have the same effect on us this morning. And that effect is, it should cause us to worship. If he's the God of a billion trillion galaxies, if he's the God of the, the gene and the galaxy, we owe him our submission, we owe him our allegiance, we owe him our obedience, we owe him our all. And I think worship is a great way to sum up what I mean when I say our all. True worship is this, the offering of our lives as a living sacrifice. This is what Paul would say in Romans chapter 12. And especially, especially if you are in Christ, in verse 20, especially if this awesome God does this, in verse 20, making peace, by the blood of his cross. This God who created all these galaxies, who created us so intricately and wonderfully, is the God who lays down his life, sheds his blood to bring us back into a relationship with him. Yes, we, he, we owe him our worship just as, as our creator, but how much more do we owe him our worship when we see that he is our Redeemer as well. And so let me encourage you this morning, late Baldwin Church, worship Christ. He is supremely worthy of it. Would you pray with me? Oh God, immortal and invisible, all wise, you are Lord over all of creation. We would not exist except for the fact that you brought us into being. 
And you brought us into, the be into being not for ourselves, but for you, Lord. And we give you thanks. Because when we look at you and we see this gospel of grace that you shed your blood on the cross so that we could be reconciled to you, Father, we can't help but fall down and say, you are great. You are worthy of all of our praise. You are worthy of all of our life. And we give you great praise this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.